We're inviting this evangelical to understand, you know, the evangelical like an anthropological thing. You know, it's like a travel log, uh, like Margaret Mead and Samoa or something like this. Yeah, like we um, know we know the natives are naked. That's right. Don't and hideous touch to them. you. That's right. But this that's... is science. Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, here today with J.D. Koch of Christ Church Anglican in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. Matt Kennedy is on the highway between JFK and his house in Binghamton, New York. He may call in, he may not. We're going to see how it goes today. J.D., how are you doing? Doing great. Doing great, Nick. Thanks. You missed our last episode, a conversation with David Old about COVID, the church, and the situation in Australia. We got some feedback on that episode. <laughs> uh, did you have anything that you wanted to add or comment? Oh, I had lots of thoughts, uh, as did many of our as many of our listeners, uh, as we heard. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think it's I I think it's there's a lot to be said. I think part of you know from from a country that gave us the Magna Carta. Um, and sort of the original um, questioning by the up from the people of the ruling, literal ruling aristocracy. Um, it was interesting to see how supposedly divergent our shared values for individual liberty over against collective, um, the good of the collective uh, seemed to be, according to uh, David, you know, just as I was listening, you know, maybe the country that gave us hot fuzz. Um, and for the greater good, <laughs> as maybe that was, maybe that wasn't so much a, um, maybe that was a symptom, not a, uh, a, a cause of anything that, uh, that, uh, wonderful movie, but no, I think, yeah, I think it's obviously there are, uh, cultural differences that we have to take into account. I mean, it was, we were actually, as we've been talking about in the interim, uh, intervening time, um, talking to someone on the ground. So, you know, I mean, I can't tell you, I've never been to Australia and I certainly can't tell you from a, um, ground level view what it's like. And so it was very interesting to hear, um, you know, some things that I agreed with in terms of, uh, or at least some things that I, I thought I knew about how Australia was being run and um, sort of governed during this time and certain things that I thought were interesting about uh, that were sort of uh, counter the, at least some of the narratives on TV, both on the, you know, the more to the left and to the right, for that matter. I thought it was some, um, it was an interesting look behind the, the fourth wall of the television into what life is like on the ground for an actual Australian clergyman. Um, yeah, I mean, I think we'll continue to talk about this. Uh, you know, had, had we all been thinking 18 months ago, uh, when we began this, that we would be uh, that our political theology would be tested in such a direct and uh, real life way. I don't think anyone would have believed it. But now here we are dealing with um, the questions of subsidiarity down to our local magistrates and um, the limits of um, elected and unelected authority. And I think um, I guess listening to it and my final statement on it would be, uh, you know, one, there's obviously some cultural differences between us and the Australians, at least through the eyes of a Englishman. <laughs> <And> so <laughs> I thought that was an interesting um, perspective to hear. And it also made me, um, well, it just reminded me of the need to uh, continue to talk about these things with like-minded, uh, well, with, with Christian people who are wrestling through the, the real difficulty that lies before us, which is um, the admonition to submit to authorities, you know, to understand that 
that God is a God of order, not of chaos, and that uh, throughout Christian history, we have been instructed to, as at all possible, live at peace with all. You know, this is, and yet there are limits and ends to that where we are um, individually and then as a corporate body uh, called to to examine and to transgress uh, with great fear and trembling. And so I, I do appreciate his his uh, concern that we were not reactionary, um, just sort of libertarian anarchists for the sake of, you know, some abstract concept of freedom, because as he was quick to point out, and we certainly share with him, our victory is um, secured and our this world is not our home. And so there is a certain amount of peace that the world does not know that we can evince, even in the face of homicidal, homicidal tyranny, much less sort of soft tyranny, the way that people are um, shaming you into wearing masks or not, or whatever the case may be. So I think that there's a... Um, there was a, a real balance that we are uh, trying to strike. And I think that the overall admonition for Christian people to bear with each other and show as much grace um, for individual conscience uh, with respect to the specific questions of, uh, of sort of resistance or acquiescence was a good one to be reminded of. And so, yeah, I mean, I have a lot, we could talk, we should have a whole show on uh, maybe Christian, um, you know, inalienable rights. I thought Matt's point about um, the the rights of our, you know, our government is of the people, for the people, by the people, that we recognize um, rights not given to us by deferred by the government or conferred by the government or a monarchy, but actually established by God. I mean, the the uh, original framers of the Constitution were very much steeped in the um, Enlightenment concepts of natural law and sort of even at the very basic level, deistic understandings of uh, the Creator and rights that were recognized by governments, not conferred by governments. And so um, for me, it's uh, the, the entire discussion is two pronged in that there's a practical, you know, sort of public health conversation where most uh, kind of most people are happy to have that conversation about vaccines and their efficacy and various uh, mitigation efforts that need, need to be taken. And these are, you know, um, an interesting conversation that many people can have uh, with relative um, distance. It's when you get into the mandates, the uh, transgressions of people's freedoms, um, you know, unelected or even elected officials uh, uh, prohibiting or, or mandating things that um, are well beyond the scope of their, um, their sort of enumerated or empowered authority, you, that's a real problem. And I think the people who um, ignore that, ignore that to their own peril. It doesn't mean that the worst thing in the world is that your local MARTA bus company says you have to wear a mask and you think, well, that's just one small thing. And that's true if you look at it in a microcosm or in a, a very narrow way. But if you extrapolate that principle to the um, to its possible largest um, extent, then you, well, back to the good old Simon Pegg and um, uh, Hot Fuzz, you know, what can't you justify? What liberty or freedom can't you justify curtailing or outright denying, quote unquote, for the greater good. Um, and this is the tragedy and the, the peril of utilitarianism, you know, this um, terrible uh, uh, philosophy, um, you know, the greatest good for the greatest number, you know, um, sort of idea, uh, which tramples individual rights and or the real what people have argued is the real philosophy that America has bequeathed to the world of pragmatism, you know, just whatever works. Um, 
you know, we'll figure out a justification for it on the other side. And so, again, I'm, I'm I, there's maybe I've, I, I'd love to maybe we'll get uh, David back on because I certainly respected and um, uh, admired uh, brother in Christ and a Christian leader from afar. I've never met him personally, but I, I was he was part of that um, original stand firm group that was so, um, you know, like the original band. I feel like in a certain sense, we're kind of like uh, like a you know, it's like when the original lead singers died or moved on, like we were like, we're, we're like the, the kiss. Yeah, like that's still Leonard Skinner. Really? <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, you know, it's hard for me to, um, it, I, it, I basically listen to most of what he says with, with more than a measure of respect and deference and appreciation for another insight and another perspective. Um, and look forward to continuing the conversation. Amen. Makes me glad to live in America. I'll say that. Amen. Well, listen, uh, the last week or so has seen a strange spate of articles about so-called elite evangelicalism, the (laughs) confluence of supposed evangelicals with elite culture. Uh, Mark Galley, former editor of Christianity Today, wrote a piece. Who coined the term? Who coined the term? Elite evangelical. All right. Well, there you go. Wrote a piece on his blog, kind of sticking it to his old publication and by extension himself, I suppose, accusing many evangelicals of soft peddling uncomfortable beliefs in a bid to be accepted by elite media like the New York Times, etc. His article was picked up by Denny Burke yesterday, as we record this on Tuesday, October 12th, who used it as a springboard to write about elite evangelicalism's allergy to complementarianism. There was another article last week in the American Reformer by John Errett called The Embarrassment Reflex, Evangelicals and Culture. And now there's this seminar today, I think actually happening right now as we record. No wonder our internet's so slow right now, Nick. (laughs) (laughs) At the University of Chicago on, quote, Evangelical Christianity and the Culture Wars, which features none other than Russell Moore and David French. So... JD, talk to me about the connection points between culture, evangelicalism, and the gospel. Is there a possibility of engaging culture without appealing to it? Or will a desire to appeal to culture always require an abdication of what makes gospel Christianity stand apart from the world? Well, I think we need to, that's a good question, Nick, and don't forget it, but I think we need to go back and talk about this concept of quote-unquote elite evangelical in the first place. Uh, because as far as I know, and correct me, listener, if I'm wrong, but I think Mark Galley is the one who coined the phrase by his own uh, self-attestation as an elite evangelical in a now famous or infamous um, Christianity Today op-ed on the dangers of Trumpism. I forget the exact um, title of his article, but essentially in that article, he said that he was observing a divide amongst evangelicals um, over basically the sort of populist uh, support of Trump and then a, by his attestation, quote unquote, elite evangelical rejection of Trump and quote unquote Trumpism. Now, not to get into that, um, uh, the merits of that designation or the divide at this point, it's not, it's not important because whatever merits Trumpism, quote unquote Trumpism, um, or the, the moniker had, uh, the designation, excuse me, the elite adjective has remained, obviously, and is now I guess, ostensibly a part of our cultural discussion um, and an agreed upon distinction between, I don't know, what would you call us um, uh, non-elite evangelicals or... or, I mean, I guess you'd say something like 
blue collar evangelicals, yeah, right? Or or whatever, you know, like the um yeah. And so the the distinction that Galley was making back in the day was thinly or more thinly veiled than it even is now, if <laughs> you can believe it. Thinlier, thinnerly, yeah. thinnerly veiled. Thinner. <laughs> he uh because essentially the argument was that uh thoughtful, well-read, quote unquote, elite people were rejecting Trump, whereas the um we've heard this, we don't need to rehash that. That's yeah. what that's not true, but never the case. There we go. But that has remained as a distinction. And for whatever reason, I think that is a I don't know exactly why. Um, it, these are all these articles came up, but they all were talking this, about the same thing, which is that there, and, and I think part of the issue they came on is there has been an increase in um, appeals to the quote unquote evangelical elite um, from some of these uh, more sort of mainstream high profile, I guess you would say, I don't like to use this phrase, elite publications, the New Yorker, the New York Times, to understand them. You know, we're inviting this evangelical and to understand, you know, the evangelical, like an anthropological thing, you know, it's like a travel log into, uh, into um, you know, like, uh, uh, like Margaret Mead and Samoa or something like this. Yeah, like we, um, know, we know the natives are naked. That's right. Don't hideous touch to them. you. That's right. But this that's, is science. That's right. Don't, don't keep your hands and feet inside your tesla at all times um <laughs> but um but anyway but but what's happened though is and i think this is where mark galley skewered it and it's actually came out a couple of weeks ago also in a guy freddie DeBoer's blog remember i don't know who this man is but he was talking about um how ross douthat as a sort of roman catholic had kind of straddled this divide because um i guess now like mark galley's roman catholic sees themselves as not part of the quote-unquote uh, evangelicals but nevertheless he was talking about how there was there was a temptation that has been well documented that when um the evangelicals are people who have um sort of convictions that put them at odds with the uh, cultural mainstream are invited to speak in and through some of these publications that invariably what they end up doing is um if not parroting the values of the of the organization they certainly don't undermine or come in direct conflict with and i think you know you could see some of this beginning i think in my own and our own lives most recently with like tim keller's interviews of people you know on various high holy days christian high holy days of like easter and christmas where he would um be you know asked invited to sort of be asked usually by nicholas Kristoff, as far right. as i can remember you know about um Am the I resurrection yeah. exactly and you know tim keller to his credit was able to uh you know in a in a less direct way than simply saying no saying well what you believe has put you outside the bounds of christian orthodoxy or something like this which you know is just about as far as they're as you're allowed to go uh, because, you know, although we did see Karen Swallow Pryor, to her credit, um, in a couple of uh, weeks ago uh, on the Texas abortion bill, had the temerity to, or the, the courage, I should say, the, the, um, to, to explain to an unbelieving audience uh, like how these crazy fundamentalist Christians could believe that this bill was, a, in fact, a good as opposed to a negative. And she was um, received... Uh, you know, uh, the, the, the due judgment for her actions, you know, on Twitter and uh, which, I mean, again, to her credit, uh, I was very proud that she was representing forthrightly the Christian, uh, as far as I could tell position on, um, abortion, you know, however one thinks about the legality, the particular legality of that specific bill, 
but anyway, so all of that to be said is there is this there's this emerging dialectic between the uh, quote unquote elites speaking for evangelicals and then the evangelicals who are starting to say, you know, I don't know well who who you think you are, but you're not speaking for me. Yeah. Um, and it's coming to a head in part because the contempt, and I think that's a strong word, but I don't know how else you would describe it, the, the growing contempt for supposed um, sort of evangelical elites for the people who they supposedly have more in common with than those to whom they are speaking, you know, the, the people writing about evangelicals as one, um, there's a there's a affinity that's assumed that I think is being um, the goodwill of which is being stretched to a point, if not broken. And we're seeing that now in some of these articles, because what's happening is that there's only so long you can have someone describe you as a sort of a third person or second hand and it not resemble you before you begin to push back. Yeah, I mean, that that's what's happening. We, we Let's talk more about that. But I think that's what. That's particularly what um, John Eric was was pointing to. Is that and I can some- see the high school lunchroom now, right? Like you're, well, like I was at one of the tables, you know, around the periphery, looking in to the table where all the cool kids were, and sort of, kind of hoping that one day you might end up there. But then, like one of your friends gets invited there. And that's cool, but then they stay there, <laughs> and you you see them like turning around and looking at you that's and right. pointing, and then you you find out because in the, this case you're actually reading what they wrote that what they're saying is actually I'm not really like them. This is the the plot of every can't buy me love every comedy thinking. right yeah. And once like, the girl you had to pay her off because she spilled wine on her parents' uh, <laughs> cashmere suede. And it was leather suede. Oh yeah. And then he put a, fl- a bag of flaming dog uh, poop on um member on his best yeah. friend's door, and that was mm-hmm. it. It was like how you know well, he thought we were the same, and it was <laughs> yeah, it was heartbreaking. But there you go. So Nick, you were just waiting for that for that invitation, and all you're left with is a flaming, flaming bag of dogs. Bag of dogs. That's right. <laughs> I mean, evangelical. Um, whatever the historical entomology, whatever one wants to argue, argue about it's the, the usefulness of the term or not, fundamentally what it's becoming is simply an appeal that the Bible is a, is a, is a, is a, is a, is a, is a supreme authority. I mean, for lack of a better word, the Bible, the Bible is inerrant, is, is truthful, is, um, is inspired, is, um, is the word of God. Like, this is what we, this is what we believe. And so evangelicals, that's right. And so whatever else you want to say about it, um, I think at the very least, you could say that, you know, as David Bevington said, the first one, biblical, you know, biblicist, you say, but that's not a negative, just that would be. So when you, when you, when you say that, well, then you have elevated a, an authority structure over all other claimants to the throne. I mean, there is no sort of independent human reason that you can bring. There's no sort of your truth is my truth. There's no, as I was teaching a Bible study today, I think Paul is arguing in Romans chapter two and three in particular, you know, that the, 
that God is, uh, that every mouth will be stopped. You know, this is the claim of the Bible. If you do not, if you're not appealing to the Bible for your knowledge of God, and in fact, your knowledge of yourself and the world, then you're not, you're not accurately seeing the world as it is. I mean, that's a, that's quite a claim. And so as a result of that, anyone that appeals to that by any means is going to be, be considered, um, well, certainly at odds with the prevailing culture, if not, um, if not in direct conflict with them. And that's why this moniker evangelical has become such a catch-all for essentially anyone that believes that God has in fact spoken into the world. So whether it's with abortion, you know, why do you believe says who that it's the embryo is a baby? Well, God said, you know, to it, whether it's male and female, well, you know, what do you mean? There's not an infinite number of genders. Well, God has said, whether it's uh, the mean meaning for sex, the role and responsibility of parents, the uniqueness of Christian marriage, the limitations on that marriage to men and women. I mean, just go down the list of things. The, the people who will appeal to an authority higher than them, and as it were outside of them are going to be considered, um, well, uh, I mean, odd at the very best in a multicultural non-Christian world and uh, dangerous and seditious or seditious, excuse me, at, at, at the worst. And so as a result of that, you have this appeal in this sort of middle ground to to radical argument into a more palatable, more understandable sort of um, uh, language for an unbelieving and supposedly, um, you know, kind of clear thinking, rational, open minded populace like those who read The New Yorker or The Economist or The Atlantic or The New York Times, or The L.A. Times, whatever the case may be. And there, therein lies the rub, because you can flower it, you can say it sweetly, you can um, use a lot of, uh, you know, wonderful flowing adjectives, you can um, be incredibly winsome in your person, you can um, do everything you can, until you actually communicate something that has the weight of a claim from God, i.e. you say it's true, um, over against um, other claimants, and you're, that's going to be an impossible task to to translate that. It's not, um, it's not going to be uh, palatable. It's going to be rejected. And in fact, as Paul says, the law will in, in, in fact provoke wrath. I mean, this is what's going to happen. Like you can say, like, look at Karen, we've talked about this, like Karen Swallow Pryor. I mean, she's, she's as well read and as, um, you know, well written and spoken and articulate and all of the things that anyone could possibly want as a public spokesperson. And yet she had the, uh, like we said before, the the, the audacity to simply re uh, to communicate what Christians have always believed about um, the sanctity of human life uh, with with notable uh, exceptions to the um, th that were wrong uh, obviously throughout history but but as a whole and she was um, immediately rejected you know by some on Twitter you know immediately um, written off as um you know old man as, as a christian an evangelical. as an evangelical and so 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 that's the the there is another option which is to shave that off too and you can still i think that there's a there's still a core of people who would call themselves christians though not evangelicals who would want to appeal to a god who has spoken into the world but a god who only has said love right and this is the same thing that we encounter when we observe interreligious dialogues where you hear statements about 
things that we have in common and aren't all religions basically the same. And when you boil something down to the thing that quote unquote, we all agree on, it's just the law. It's exactly how, how, how to be good. And the, the, how to be good of Christianity is love your neighbor, which everybody loves to just mold to whatever their pet project is at the moment. Well, that's, what's interesting about the, our current situation, because, um, you know, when you and I were coming up in college, high school and college, um, there still wasn't agreed upon, as it were, kind of uh, general morality for what love looked like. Um, well, I wouldn't say agreed upon, but particularly among, amongst religious dialogues, right? I mean, like love was like care for the poor and the widows, um, don't commit, you know, sort of a general outline of the Ten Commandments, you know, I mean, even, you know, there was like no one, you didn't hear a lot of, um, you know, in the interreligious dialogue, your Muslims, Hindus, and Sikhs, people saying, you know, we should all go out and commit adultery, like this kind of agreed upon. Um, and, you know, that was then, this is now. But but the, the problem has always been, like we've said, love in the Bible is the law. Um, you know, the two commandments are summed up, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor to yourself. These two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So on one hand, when you tell someone that all you need to do is love, theologically speaking, all we're, that's literally saying what we all we need is the law. Um, but beyond that, the difficulty with the Christian understanding with, in, in terms of these interreligious dialogues, is that love for the Christian is, is not, um, it is a very specific action. It was the propitiatory sacrifice of Christ for sinners. It was the reconciliation of God's enemies to himself through the death of his son. It was, in fact, an action of forgiveness and mercy for, the, for the, those in need of forgiveness and, uh, and mercy. And so when we understand love fundamentally that way, well, then it manifests itself in likewise actions, but they're all predicated upon upon an argument that stems, that is rooted in the reality of sin and judgment and redemption. And if you try to take, put love into a context that doesn't take the, into account um, sin and redemption, well, then you're not talking about Christian love, because Christian love is the overcoming of sin by the redeeming sacrifice of Christ for sinners. Like, that's what Christian love is. And then by extension, we live as those who have been loved, as First John says, um, but we love because, not because we love, because he loved us first. And so when we get into modern conceptions of quote unquote love, as far as I can tell, what love means is actually it's opposite. As you've always heard, you know, like in high school um, philosophy classes, you know, the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference, mm -hmm. you know, and then there's like, there's like a clove cigarette or whatever, a clove, <laughs> a, a clove jewel that people are smoking now. And they're like, let's go, um, you know, uh, uh, watch the football game or whatever. And um but that's, but that's true insofar as it goes. The opposite of love is not hate, but indifference. And that's actually what love is becoming defined as. In order for you to love me or me to love you is that I actually can't be concerned at all about what I genuinely believe to be true about what's good for you or what life is uh, meant or who God is or all the things that are true. I have to let your truth be yours and mine be mine, which as any um, person who has actually loved someone else knows is in fact um, the opposite of love. You know, no, I mean, no, no uh, parent 
um, has indifference to their children unless we would take them away from that child. You know, ne neglect is a, is a crime. You know, I mean, spousal abuse and, and neglect is, is a mount grounds for, you know, uh, um, abandonment is grounds for biblical grounds for divorce, for goodness sakes. And so we have this, um, this, this world where people are trying to, um, to communicate biblical, communicate a version of quote unquote biblical Christianity by identifying with the evangelicals while sharing the Bible or sharing that, that quote unquote Christianity of any of the actual um, offensive specifics that the Bible would uh, require them to utilize, um, namely one God, um, you know, a beginning and end of time, uh, one true religion, the rest are false. I mean, just again, go down the list. And, you know, that seems to be a fool's errand because, and I think, what's his name? Um, uh, Mark Galley got it, but so did in this article by John Arad on the embarrassment reflex, evangelicals and culture, there, no one's buying it. Like you might be able to make a name for yourself among as like Schleiermacher's day, the culture despisers, but let's not pretend that those people are actually buying what you're selling. You know, yeah. they're, they're, it's a, it's a convenient. They can smell you. Exactly. And it's a convenient, um, you know, way to have, you know, um, have your dinner table full display your open mindedness and how um, well cultured you are. But again, this is, this is just, but it, so you know, this is actually very interesting because it actually only serves, for instance, the New York times. Exactly. Because the readers of the times, they don't care. They can smell you a mile away. They're like, Oh, so-and-so is ordained in the ACNA. That's someone I can ignore. That's and right. The other side isn't reading the New York Times. That's so right. the only benefit is the actual publisher of the New York Times who can go to sleep at night thinking this lie that he or she is appealing to, you know, everyone in the nation, when in fact, no one is actually learning anything from anybody. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think the the problem is that when it comes to the the broad brushes, uh, the broad strokes of the contours of Christianity, we still live, um, despite some of the obvious um, ignorance that some people have displayed, particularly in the pages of the New York Times, like your actual well-read, genuinely cultural elite person is not totally unfamiliar with the basic arguments of Christianity. I just don't believe right. that. I mean, in the same way that I could give you the basic arguments of Greek and Roman mythology sure. to this day, you know, I don't, now I may, they may consider both of those to be in the same boat, which is where we would differ, but nevertheless, you know, it's, um, I don't, I don't buy the idea that somehow they're like, what, tell me a little bit more about this, this Jesus person <laughs> who has, I mean, and so as a result of that, I think, um, I don't know what's going to happen on the other side of this, because at some point, the, the readership, like, for instance, Christianity Today's readership is um, one imagines, uh, you know, was they're, they're dependent to a certain degree on the very people who they seem to be worried about reading their magazine, or at least worrying and, and needing to teach the people that are reading their magazine about how to get along well with the culture despise. I mean, again, I just can't help but keep going back to Schleiermacher and his uh, speeches on religion and think that this has all been tried 
Um, this has all been tried. And, you know, I'm sympathetic to the attempt. I mean, who doesn't want, who wants to feel maligned and uh, dismissed? You know, who wants to feel uh, put down? You know, I want to, I want to sit there, you know, the moment I feel um, dismissed because of a particular Christian conviction I have, or just conviction in general, I want to, you know, brandish all of my degrees and, and, you know, who do you think you are? And, and here's my, my transcript and look how, um, you know, look at me, like, who doesn't want to feel that way? And yet, I think that um, at a certain point, and maybe it's just taken us, what, 25 years of doing this and trying to be as sophisticated as possible, like trying to read the right things, trying to say the right um, phrases, trying to listen to the right music and read the right books and be involved in all this. And still, at the end of the day, essentially having people say, oh, wait, you mean actually believe this? You know, the, you know, the, uh, the death for sinners, you know, he's coming again to judge the living and the dead, the bodily resurrection. I mean, again, down the list. And you have to say either, uh, yes, you know, yes, I believe Grado, um, or you make some sort of, uh, which again, we've sad, seen before, sad um, capitulation to the, um, well, I mean, it's not a, a trite phrase, the zeitgeist, I mean, literally means the spirit of the age. And the spirit of our age is that, um, um, you know, cynicism and, um, and uh, suspicion of any claims of absolute truth are what's, what rules the day. And so as long as you can um, have a caveat somewhere in there is like maybe that, that your truth is your truth and mine is mine or, or it is what it is or some, some um, capitulation of that, well, then you'll still be allowed a seat at the table. But the moment you, you put your stake in the ground and say, actually, this is, this is um, as I was preaching about on Sunday, this is not something I'm coming to persuade you with, but it's something I'm proclaiming to you. You know, I haven't been asked to convince you, but to inform you about what is actually true about the world. Uh, and so consider yourself thusly informed that um, he will come again to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. And I don't say that, I say that with fear and trembling. And I say that with, in, um, you know, awesome, uh, sort of gratitude for God's condescending love in his son for sinners, which I hope comes through in the discussions that I have with the culture despisers, but a surefire way to extend the contempt they already have of Christianity is to demean and uh, or, or to sort of capitulate on the central concerns, which they know, in fact, you the Christians do hold in order to have a seat or a place with them at the table. And I think that's what people are pushing back on. And great. Thankfully, not, you know, it's it, we're like on the early end of this, I think uh, we're not at the um you know, we haven't had that many high, high level, just straight up abdications. Um, and if anything, maybe it's a warning. Maybe these these articles from Galley and Eretz and some of these others are sort of a warning to the people who do have these voices at the moment is, um, you know, it's not you may not have them for long. But while you do speak, speak the truth that's been given to us and trust that the Holy Spirit has put you there. Um, for such a time as this, you know, that would be my uh, encouragement to anyone that has, um, you know, more than um, two Twitter followers, you know, more than, uh, I mean, I think I'm almost up to 400 something oh Twitter gosh. followers. The New York I know. Times going to be calling any day. <laughs> Look out. That's right. Listen. Remind me of this when, I, <laughs> when I'm tempted by the weight, you know, throw yourself from this temple, JD, and the angels will catch you. I'll say, and 
As we're getting ready to wrap up, I did want to ask you one question, something that actually we were talking about just before we pressed record on this episode. Um, it sort of sounds like, if you'll permit me a tortured illustration, it sort of sounds like in the demolition derby of modern life, the, the church's car and the culture's car smashing into each other. And as we've sort of alluded to throughout this conversation, it at least seems like whenever the church's car tries to smash into the culture's car, it's the church's car that gets a little bit more dinged up and the edges rubbed off and the, the people who are most desirous of being accepted by the culture have to sand off the particularly Christian hearts. Now we know how it ends. We know that the, the church will prevail, but that's potentially in the future. The question I want to ask you is if the culture won't have us, what kind of culture should we be at work constructing? Yeah, Christian culture. <laughs> well, I mean, no, I think your point, the question is apt because, um, again, and I, I hope maybe it hasn't come across, but, you know, the temptations for um, worldly accolades and affirmation and um, and uh, success are as near and dear to the sinful desires of my own heart and our own hearts as, as anyone. So I have, um, you know, I, I impart, um, do preach and teach and, and get put on record in order to have a uh, sort of corrective leash around my own life, as it were, you know, you could play this back to me when I'm confronted um, by the, the untold tens of people that are um, hanging on my every word. But, but I, I think this is the the point is that we are, and again, Eric's article does a good job of cataloging this, that um, that we are all weak people. And as a movement, Christian people are just a bunch of sinners who happen to have been found forgiveness. But uh, the, the, the wiles of the world and affinity with it is something that is ever present. And and we do now have decades, if not centuries, of um, of recorded of record of showing how exactly to your point this will not work. Is that you know Jesus himself said, "Friendship with the world is enmity with God." I mean, this is again not that we have to be quietists or you know react or reject the world, but if we're looking to somehow make our message palatable, then we're going to be. Um, well, there's just no way to do that, um, you know, and I think we, like we said before, in order, and in, instead, and, unless we capitulate on some of the actual offensive and, as it were, bloody aspects of our of our faith. So, what do we do in in light of that? I think is we not that we give up the uh, idea of making disciples or converting people, but we we have to have much more of a um, local option sort of idea. That I think this kind of um, mass culture idea that somehow we're going to have the right music or the right yeah. um, movie or the right Bible study or the right uh, study Bible, you know, like the the hipster. Um, you know, uh, cashmere hoodie study Bible, um, you know, is, uh, we think that's going to be the silver bullet. And that has proven to just have, have raised a bunch of now um, ex-evangelicals and nuns, um, whereas the hard work 
of um, wrestling with your own doubts and fears, you know, um, expose, uh, uh, submitting your own life to the authority of scripture, however imperfectly, and, and as a result of that, or as part of that, um, your own Bible study and discipleship and formation, and then by extension, loving your neighbor as you love yourself by Ephesians 4, equipping the saints for the work of ministry, you know, walking with your spouse, walking with your children, and as your actual were, literal neighbors. That's right. Not your Facebook friends, quote unquote or your Twitter followers, or even your, even the people who listen to you or uh, engage with your uh, social media or your output. I mean, you know, certain authors and teachers have uh, some reach, but even their reach is far more powerful in the confines of their own physical embrace than they are on their printed page. And when it comes to actually, um, when it comes to their, their lives as they are. So, so I guess the answer to that would be um, to the extent that we can, um, appreciate the the uh, reach that we have, but I think don't overestimate the value and the importance of the of the the physical proximity that God has given you with respect to your own life, and um, do what we can to create and establish and perpetuate a a biblical and Christian culture, which is grounded in the reality of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and his actual actions in history through this death and resurrection of his son and his providential care for the world and his promise to come again and, you know, wash, rinse, and repeat that. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and and I don't know, I, I think that I'm heartened by the fact that for the most part, and I won't name names, but some men that are now um, sort of retirement age have been very influential in my life in a variety of capacities and leadership roles in the Christian church um, have almost to a person in private conversations with them expressed to me a time when there was there was a real moment where they had to count the cost of whether or not professing this in the world was going to be worth the uh, cordant scorn and rejection from, you know, sort of quote unquote elite society and the questions of their intellectual capabilities and the question of their sophistication and, you know, and on down the line. And I'm, I never, I have yet to meet the ones who answered in the negative because they were not Christian leaders in my life. But these men in particular said, well, Lord, um, you know, this is what you have called us to preach and teach and to hold on to. And this is the ground and basis for our faith and it come what may. And again, uh, not to name names, but they have had an immense impact, not only on my lives, but in the lives of many people um, around the world. And it's been a result of, um, as uh, I forget the commentator said, not being uh, fearless men, but in fact, being afraid of the right thing, uh, because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's where um, this conversation will continue. And I pray, um, I know you do too, I, I, I want nothing more than than evangelical elites to seize the opportunity they have before the Sanhedrin and before Emperor and Caesar um, and before a, a listening world to speak boldly and courageously and, and in some cases offensively about the, the, the scandal on of the cross um, in the hopes that some may be saved. And we will, we will continue to pray for that and support it where we see it and um, trust that if in the unlikely event we get the opportunity, uh, that one or the other of us will um, remind us of what we have uh, said um, on that day and trust the Holy Spirit will give us the words to speak. So, 
Well, that's going to be the end of our conversation today. Uh, we do appreciate you taking the time to listen. If you'd like to keep the conversation going with us, you can be in touch. You can rate and review the podcast on iTunes or send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com. It should or, be noted that Matt called in. He just decided to listen. So thanks, right, Matt. Yeah. yeah, thanks. Matt. Had nothing to say. No <laughs> strong right. opinions today. That's right. You can also join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. We do thank J.D. Koch and Matt Kennedy, wherever he is on the, I guess, not the Long Island Expressway. He's going the other way. Anyway, hopefully all three of us will be back together next week. I'm Nick Lannon. And uh, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. Mm-hmm.